In the China Syndrome, a reporter stumbles into a major safety concern at a nuclear power plant. The threat of a possible meltdown is obscured by red tape, cover-ups, and intimidation. It all comes down to one man on the inside. Welcome everyone to the Collector's Cut. I am Peter and joining me as always is David. It's dynamite, Morty. Nuclear dynamite. <laughs> this is a movie podcast and this current season that we are wrapping up today is 70s disaster season. We haven't done all of them. There's plenty left for a season two down the line, but the last one we're looking at on this batch is the China Syndrome from 1979. So we're going to get into it and we'll talk about it. We'll start spoiler free as we always do. We'll give you a warning before we go into spoilers. Uh, but this is a film which uh, revolves around a nuclear power plant. It's the end of the 70s. The idea of safety and nuclear energy is a, is a big question. And notably, this takes place less than a decade before Chernobyl, <laughs> which is... I mean, if you really want to get down to it, I don't know how much you know about this. Uh, this took place 12 days, like it was released 12 days before Three Mile Island. Oh, right, okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that one's not as, uh, you know, pressing in my ah. my knowledge as Chernobyl is for obvious reasons. But yeah, that's mm. uh, that is quite interesting. Uh, so this has got Jane Fonda in it. You got Michael mm-hmm. Douglas. You got Jack Lemmon as your kind of big trio. Uh, because this is a little different to the other movies that we have talked about uh, this season. It's a little bit notable in that of the three films, because out of the six that we've done in total, because one was the uh, the bonus episode for Patreon and YouTube members, mm-hmm. out of the six we've done in total, including this one, three of them were 1979. And yeah. all the other ones, the other two that were in 1979, both had this feeling of, oh, this is at the end, where they're kind of run out of ideas, they feel a bit schlockier, they feel a little bit like they they don't have the same momentum. This mm-hmm. is the opposite of that, where it feels like it's evolving into like another genre almost, where oh, it's yeah. a disaster movie, but it's got a really different kind of like lens and the way it's tackling disaster is more it's a lot more preventive it's a lot more about conspiracy it's a lot more about all these other things as opposed to just you know chaos and fire and run for your lives yeah this one was definitely more i i think it's credited on imdb as disaster and suspense or thriller Mm. and that's definitely the descriptive word is that it's far more of a standard like thriller plot than it is a disaster film plot yeah, with with the lingering of the disaster like being there yeah. the, the entire time. And I think what's so interesting about it is that because we actually have real examples that you can kind of like compare this to that came after, mm. um, and in the case with Chernobyl, we have a fantastic miniseries that HBO did just a couple of years ago, which I'm not going to lie, there's a moment early in this film where the guy's talking to our lead characters, the reporter, and he's explaining the rods and the water to kill yep. it down. And I'm like, yeah, I'm something of a scientist myself. I watched Chernobyl. Exactly. I know this. <laughs> yeah, I was sitting there. I was like, hmm, actually, your explanation seems a bit wrong in a few places based off of what I know from Chernobyl. <laughs> it's like, I can't assume that I'm right and he's wrong, but it definitely felt more accurate when I watched Chernobyl. And Yeah, know, uh, absolutely. You know, Jared Harris did a very good job <laughs> explaining there all was this one, stuff. There was one point in this movie <laughs> where one character said, like, and through some process, the fuel would continue to heat up. And I'm like, uh, that process actually has four different limiting factors, <laughs> as I saw. 
Oh god. So like it's gonna be impossible not to bring up Chernobyl occasionally when talking oh, about yeah. this movie. Uh that this I mean if anything I didn't really know about this movie beforehand, but this was clearly mm. the probably the, the prime like piece of media in this particular topic before Chernobyl existed, I imagine. Probably. Yeah. You know, as as far as like big, you know, fictional dramatic iterations go this was probably mm. the biggest one before hbo came along with chernobyl so yeah yeah so we'll definitely be bringing that up as we go um can i, can I just say what was something that was really distracting to me uh throughout this movie this is not a negative it's just an observation oh, okay. that was wowing me is younger jane fonda here looks so much like linda cardinelli that oh I, okay that i couldn't like and she even sounds like her it, it was it was blowing my mind like how much she looks like her that's fair i was actually thinking amy adams a lot of time Really? Just because she had the she had the dyed red hair throughout this whole movie. It just really struck me as like if this movie had to be redone today, I guarantee you Amy Adams would get that role. I mean Amy Adams probably would because she's the bigger movie star than Linda Cardinelli. Oh yeah. But I, I, I swear, like you know, anyone who knows Linda Cardinelli's face and voice, I would go back and watch a couple of scenes of this with her and tell me she's not like uh, you know Jane Fonda looks very different, like in her older age mm-hmm. and i don't think linda cardinelli is going to look like her just because you know I, I, i'm not critiquing jane fonda here but i think jane fonda's had some work done uh, you know along what? the way <laughs> what right no judgments but mm-hmm. uh i swear i'd be curious to see how much they would look similar in their older age if she hadn't gotten work done and we saw them both age you know relatively naturally i mean again yeah. i don't know if linda cardinelli is getting work done maybe she will uh, uh, but <laughs> Like, I don't know. It just, like, I was gobsmacked. Because I was, for a second, I was like, who is this? She looks like Linda Cardinelli. And I'm like, oh, this is Jane Fonda. And I know what yeah. Jane Fonda looks like sort of now. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, no, it, I definitely, I think there was probably a good five minutes in there where I was like, is that, he's, I know Jane Fonda's in this. Is that her? And then once they, I, it was some other shot they got later on. I was like, no, that's definitely Jane yeah. Fonda. Meanwhile, our other lead at the beginning of Michael Douglas. Looks he was like, on screen for all of like a quarter second. I was like, yeah. there he is. He looks, I would say he looks the same because he's obviously aged. And mm. maybe it's just because I've seen a lot of things with him from like the early 80s that this 1979 version of Michael uh, Douglas doesn't look any different really. But right. like I see him and I'm like, yeah, that's Michael Douglas. That's just what he looks yeah, exactly. like. <laughs> uh, whereas Jade Ford has changed so much. Uh, although on that subject, uh, it took me a second to recognize Jack Lemmon because I know Jack Lemmon from stuff Mm-hmm. from like the 50s and 60s so there was like a little minute where i'm like oh he's these the you know the, the guy in charge here in the control room and i'm like oh, oh that's jack lemon and it took me a couple of seconds but uh sure enough it's him so he, yeah. he did look a little bit different because you know i think of the apartment i think of you know some like it hot stuff like that right uh of that kind of era so yeah yeah i mean i wasn't as familiar with him but i definitely when he popped up i was like oh okay i've i've seen the face before i recognized him as that being said, just because of the way the uh, titles were structured, I didn't expect him to have such a huge part in the movie. Like it came mm. to it, his opening scene where we're introduced to him. He has a big part in that scene. And I was like, OK, he did a good job there. That I'm sure he'll have some sort of recurring role. But like he's pretty much the lead. I mean, he's, the yeah, movie. he's a he's a big star from the past. And that's kind of the hint almost that this is going to be a more prominent character. Yeah. Um, and that, that's one of the main things that I'm saying is different about a lot of these other disaster movies we've looked at is that this is less of the ensemble with a lot of caricatures to sort of like fill mm-hmm. out a cast that are all sort of being affected by it. And it's more about, no, we've got three lead characters 
Uh, Michael Douglas, by far of which, is the smallest of the three in terms of mm. like screen time and like importance. Like he's obviously important in that he drives things forward here or there, but very much the reporter. There's a lot of themes that go along with Jane Fonda's character, Kimberly, the reporter, uh, yeah. sexism and particularly sexism and like you know career ambition and things like that are the big themes that are at play with her in this mm-hmm. story and uh also also how the media covers things like that's a big theme in this which we'll get into and then of course you have the actual you know nuclear power itself and i think what's mm-hmm. interesting watching this from a modern perspective is that i think the opinion on nuclear power as a as a thing is generally a lot more positive and i don't think people are as adamantly against it as once upon a time even though accidents can happen of course like, yeah, I I don't think like in this movie you see people in the background protesting and being like, "Oh, this is unsafe having nuclear power," um, mm. and I th- I think that the general consensus on nuclear power is turned in that people are more generally okay with it, but I do think that the basically what everyone was protesting that whole time was we don't want it near us. Oh, sure. Like, here's all of our kids and stuff. I don't think that's changed. I'm pretty sure most people are like, okay, we would love to have cheaper power, but could you just do it over there instead of over here? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's uh, I think that's fair. Uh, but I, I, I don't know if it's just because of the accidents that have happened that we understand what goes wrong. So that just strengthens, mm-hmm. like, everything for the future because we understand, you know, we learn from mistakes ultimately as a, as a rule right i do think it is just a thing of understanding and knowing like hey here is basically i mean honestly as much as the show freaked me out chernobyl did more for my understanding of what actually goes into a nuclear power plant than i think any amount of science science class like here in the factory we see these workers doing whatever you know people criticize dramatization because they think it glosses it up but the truth is is that the dramatization can make you understand the impact because it'll make you feel it way more than just like a mm-hmm. science teacher explaining to you the, the catastrophe that could happen. Like, yeah. I think watching that, that Chernobyl miniseries like, made me appreciate the scope, the weight, the, the risk, all, all the things that go into it. But it also yeah. made me understand why it happened and why fundamentally it was it was humans at fault. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? And that's, you know, I think. So, you know, there's going to be a lot to talk about here. Uh, there is like four... Uh, sort of central themes to really talk about uh that yeah. i've just kind of went through there that we're going to definitely go into as we get into the spoilers and stuff like that but before we get into any like specifics or talk about plot mm. I, I guess i just have to ask the question david what did yes. you think of the china syndrome and i'm glad at some point i won't say what it is yet but they explained eventually in the movie why it's called the china syndrome because i don't yeah. understand that but yeah. on you go <laughs> um i mean i don't really want to bury the lead too far on this one i think that this is probably the best movie we've done Ooh. out of all of them. In my opinion, I think that this one, it it just held me and it was so captivating. That being said, I don't think that, as we discussed, it has a lot of disaster movie tropes to it. Mm. I think that it is far more captivating of a movie because it, basically cast off a lot of that and focused more on the interpersonal. It focused more on, it it was basically less spectacle and more of the interpersonal stuff. And I do think that the movie benefited from that. But if you're going into this saying, what's the best seventies disaster movie, 
this one's probably, you know, it's good, not great. But if you're just going and saying which one's like the best quality movie, I'd have to give it to this one hands down. It's interesting because, it, it, like I say, it's this evolution of the genre where, and this is a hindsight thing, right? But clearly their choice to do a story about this and the dangers of this and what could lead to a disaster, a nuclear power plant, and the fact that there were examples very quickly of things in the mm. real world, uh, and then not too much later, like the largest catastrophe, a nuclear power plant, that almost was much, again, what I learned from Chernobyl, is that, as bad as that was, <laughs> it was almost even worse uh, yep. for the world. And... So the fact that it clearly was a relevant topic and was was almost kind of like a, a warning sign. And I think one of the strengths of it is because I liked it as well. You know, I thought it was a, mm. a really compelling movie. Again, it wouldn't be what I'd suggest first for a disaster movie, although I definitely think it belongs in that sort of lineage because it, it, it clearly oh, is yeah. this like, there's this path that goes from like, you know, typical disaster movies to trying to experiment. And even Cassandra Crossing was like, experimental and it was trying to like hit in heavier mm-hmm. topics which is what i liked about that as well and then you've got this which is like no we're going to talk about something that's a real threat like there really is something people need to be thinking about and be aware of and uh it all, you know, a lot of it comes down to accountability and, and things like that and you know fundamentally one of the main messages of chernobyl that i think i got from it was just don't ignore things because they're inconvenient because it'll cost money and without saying anything that happens in this movie that message is at home again. Don't ignore yep. things because it's inconvenient and it'll cost money. Right? It doesn't matter. It's always the money men in the background who are yep. really at fault for everything. But, uh, yeah. So, I, I think it is very compelling and it there is this kind of fear of what could happen and I think that's handled very well right from the, the first scene where we're introduced to Jack Lemon's character, Jack. Um, which is convenient. <laughs> so, Jack. Uh, <laughs> You know, I think the way it introduces his character uh, is actually a really genius little touch from a, a filmmaking perspective, which I'll, I'll get into when we're talking about specifics. Okay. Uh, but the way, like, his performance especially, and I think all three of the leads are, are, are good. Uh, oh, yeah. But I think Jack Lemon's performance in just a couple little moments early on when it's his face that tells you that things were almost really, really bad. Like, mm-hmm. he is... He goes from being pretty confident to being absolutely freaking terrified. Just for a moment. And then they dissolve it, and it's fine, and that's just the start of the movie, you know, then they get through it. But it's like, for a moment there, he looked. He had a look in his face that says, oh shit, this might be the end. This might actually be us. And yep. it's all told in his performance. It's all told in his face. And so, he has a lot to the film, you know, like he's, he's the old-timer in the cast for this era. Oh, yeah, uh, for sure. Know, Michael Douglas is the young go He's the young up-and-coming lion in 1979. <laughs> but Jack Lemmon's the old-timer, but he is actually, like, he adds so much to this movie. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're making sort of cast equations there, uh, the Cassandra Crossing cast, mm. where Michael Douglas was the... I'm blinking on his Martin name Sheen? now. Martin Sheen, that was it. Yeah. I wanted to say Charlie Sheen. I'm like, no, that's still too young. <laughs> Um, Charlie Sheen is like what, 12 or something yeah. <laughs> whereas Jack Jack Lemmon's definitely the Richard Harris character of the he's been around the block mm. and he adds just this gravitas to things yeah and then Jane Fonda because Jane Fonda yeah yeah I mean this is not a young I mean I, I would I would call her young Jane Fonda here because like I'm used to her being older but this yeah. is not young Jane Fonda in that she was a star in the 60s and you know all that stuff mm. 
but she, so she's kind of, I guess, in, in between the two of them in terms of the, the age range and sort of like stardom mm. and experience and all that. Um, and, and I think that maybe even plays into like some of the themes that are doing with her character of her being this working woman who's trying to be taken seriously and she's mm. given these fluff pieces because they don't think she should do serious reporting and it goes into it more than that as well. Uh, yeah. But literally, the very first thing we hear in the film, you know, it's it's like uh, they're doing like uh, a check in the cameras. They're about to go to her live for a broadcast, and it's just it's just a fluff piece about like different people you can hire to do silly things for a birthday yeah, or something. Yeah, singing, singing telegrams. Yeah, um, and some of the dialogue between the producer and the the the, the director of the show or whatever it is mm. uh, are just saying. Oh, her hair looks good in red, yeah, but maybe we should get her to cut it. Jake, she will? Oh, she'll do whatever we tell her to. Like the, the, the conversation is, we're in charge of her, and she has to do what we say. That's like the very first lines of dialogue mm-hmm. we really hear in this movie, is yeah. setting up that precedent. So I do really want to point out um, just the creativeness of that opening scene, mm-hmm. and it, it bookends the movie to an extent, but a lot is done with this news sort of setup, where... We have, I think it's the first like three, four minutes of the movie. So yeah, so are... it's quite a bit of time. Yeah, you've got you got the uh, yeah. so you're basically if you're ever seen inside of like a, a gallery, like a TV studio, uh, you'll have multiple monitors and you'll have the live mm. monitor, which is the feed that's going out, but you'll have the other monitors where all the other cameras are looking at. So our opening mm. shot is effectively on the, I think it's on the right. You get the the actual like broadcast that's happening, which mm. at the time is the the news anchor sitting talking, and then in the left you've got her. Uh, at the location and she's like doing like a mic check there and it can actually i think i love the uh it shows you how hectic this life is because it's like mm-hmm. where's the camera guy oh he's in the bathroom they're kind of trying to get him back they've got like 30 seconds till they go on air yeah. and there's all that yeah and it, it's literally everyone is talking over each other the mm-hmm. entire time and then as soon as it's like all right five four three then everything just lines up all at once and you see that how like not even 10 seconds ago nobody knew where anything was and then it just all comes together for this little 40 second spot and then as soon as the cameras cut, all back to chaos again. I I really do have a soft spot for these in-show, in-movies of newscasters when they don't play it up as this glamorous thing of like, yes, we're truly saving the world here by telling <laughs> the news. It's like, no, these people are just doing their nine to five and it's hectic and crazy. Oh, and and I really uh... do have a soft spot for that. I've never worked you know, professionally doing this, but when I was doing television production in university, you know, we had mm. a TV studio, we had a gallery, and we we did we didn't actually broadcast, obviously, but we were doing it as if we were broadcasting, you know, to to train. Yeah, and it is even just faking it and just like you know having the director call out commands and like switching the cameras and mm. it, there's a lot of people having to like follow orders and like you know fall into line and it it takes you know like the first time you try it as a group of students it is a mess it does not oh, go yeah. right the camera's not in place in time for the shot like so and i think the part of the contrast that this is trying to set up here is like this is what tv news production is like a nuclear power plant by contrast everything has to be planned triple checked prepared yep. it can't be on the fly it can't be like it just comes together at the last second the whole point hmm. is that there has to be the complete opposite of this and you get that contrast when they go there and it's this quiet room behind the glass and it's like, you know, mm-hmm. everything's really neat and orderly as opposed to the chaos of the TV studio where everyone's just yelling at each other and things are flying yeah. and, you know, get it ready, blah, 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 you know? Uh, yeah. So. I mean, without too much spoilers, clearly that uh that flips on its head rather quickly, but... Of course, yeah, that's kind of the point though, right? Is that, yeah. like, it's not supposed... It's supposed to be the opposite, but 
once the money becomes an issue and people start like making demands it's like well, all of a sudden it starts to feel kind of similar and it shouldn't because mm-hmm. literally something goes wrong here you don't just accidentally get your news anchor like with some toothpaste on their their mouth on tv you you yeah. have a nuclear incident <laughs> which <laughs> might kill millions of people so eh, i think they i i think the comparison point used was a area the size of the state of pennsylvania which is not an insignificant amount of space but clearly uh clearly there is this i mean again i don't want to get too much into spoilers as to how this comes about but there is this weight to it there is this yes there they understand exactly how difficult their job is from a sense of if we mess up it's not something that can just be like oh yeah well we just fired whoever's responsible it's like no if we mess up we're going to be quite literally having to move several hundred miles that way <laughs> in order to escape yeah so yeah it's it's, it's pretty severe and it, it really sells the weight of it all but uh the contrast between the two industries is really good um the the, the fighting for your boss to hear you is like another sort mm-hmm. of like thing that's there. It's in both sides of it as well. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Performance is very good. The direction's really slick in places. I'm not yeah. too familiar with the uh, the director. I know he did another movie that is sometimes classed as a disaster movie as well from the 70s called Colossus, The Forbidden Project. I actually saw that. Uh, it's from 1970. I've seen that. I saw that a while ago. And I, I don't remember thinking it was really... A, it felt like it was kind of like... If you took this movie and took out all the parts that make it feel like it's still a disaster movie and it's just a conspiracy, <laughs> like, that's kind of what Colossus Forbidden Project is. Is I remember there's a lot of scenes of people like, talking on the phone. There's a lot of like phone calls to other people about, you know, what's happening. But yeah, other, other than that, I don't think I uh, really know any of his, his work. So I mean, I have I've nothing here strikes out as things I've seen, but I have at least heard of Urban Cowboy because I think it's one of john travolta's earliest roles ah okay okay but that Uh, is all i got from that so i think this may actually be his highest profile uh you know movie like i I don't think anything else he's made is 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 made i mean entirely possible i'm i he also apparently did writing he did even some acting himself but oh actually good point actually he only wrote colossus he didn't direct it so that's, that's interesting uh, so, but I actually think the director in this is quite solid uh, in oh, yeah. places. Uh, Absolutely. Quite inventive in a few spots in particular. I mean, as we said with the opening sequence, it does, I mean, it's a genius way to not only diegetically give like these reaction shots of seeing how whoever's on camera B is reacting to camera A, but like they to hold on that for like four minutes at the beginning while still keeping it fresh. That takes some talent, regardless. Yeah, and you've got, like, showing that she's good at what she does, but then you've got the commentary of, like, talking about her doing her job. You've got mm-hmm. the other news anchor guy. and you, you get the sense of the world that they live in, and then it's like, okay, yeah. and then they're off to, like, the nuclear power plant. For Again, it's kind of just another fluff piece. It's like they're going out there for the afternoon just to, like, interview, you know, their PR guy and, you know, get a little mm-hmm. tour, and that, that's that's basically it. It just so happens that when they're there, something goes goes wrong, and that's kind As of the... They do. That's the inciting incident for the for the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. Now, the introductions are, are exceptional. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly for, for Kimberly, for Fonda's character Kimberly and Jack. Both of those characters get fantastic introductions. 
So, mm-hmm. uh, right, good. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else I want to talk about before we get into. I mean, the spoilers. only other thing that I think it's not a spoiler, so it's not that big of a thing, but it is something to bring up is the soundtrack or lack thereof in this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, to the point where the closing credits, uh, at least, I, I haven't watched all of them, but they at least start with no music. No, they are dead silent the whole way through. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's one song during the opening credits, which is just kind of the theme song of the movie, because, of course, there has to be a theme song to oh, the movie. I, I did notice it got a credit, and I just sort of noticed that the title of the song in the credit was the lyric I heard as it came up, and I was like, oh, okay, that's that song, all right. Yeah, yeah I timed that right. Um, but yeah, no, besides that, there is not a single... No, like, written song, no score, no nothing throughout the entire rest of the movie. It is a sound effectless film. Which, I mean, I, I can't think of any other film that we've seen on the show at all that has had that. Which, I mean, that's very... I mean, I think they even, they bring up, uh, not the movie per se, but they they, they bring up uh, the reporters from, you know, the Watergate stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It's all, all the President's Men's, the movie I'm thinking about, where... If I remember correctly, that movie's pretty late on music as well. And I think part oh. of the reason why they do that is to I don't know, give it this sort of documentary real mm. feel where it's all just very kind of on the ground, the, you know, fly on the wall camera kind of thing. And mm. and that's even what the opening does. Like the idea of just opening with a camera looking at the two monitors and hearing all the dialogue, it, it gives you the impression you're just sitting in the control room, just yeah, hearing all this unfold. Uh, and then it, becomes, it, it does get more dramatized as it goes with the the camera work but it you know it, it keeps this idea of everything's very grounded mm-hmm. so it makes the yeah. threat when they react to the threat it makes it feel even bigger because it's like oh shit this is, this is real this is you know yeah this isn't music swelling with a countdown timer it's a like, blue beam of light get up to the sky and you know you're not waiting for that dun 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 no <laughs> so no no, it's just, it's uh, it's pretty good. It's very different from the other films that we've watched, and I think uh, it sticks out to me that the ones I've liked the most after Poseidon Adventure in this season have been the ones that have been different, which is this and Cassandra mm-hmm. Crossing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this does... I, I feel like this movie pulls a little bit from everything we've watched, ignoring Big Bus, unless you really <laughs> want to go nuclear, nuclear being the thing that it pulls from. D- technically, technically they were nuclear-powered bus. Yeah. So this really is just pulling from everything that we've done so far. Um, But it just really, I don't know, this one just feels like it knew exactly what film it wanted to be, exactly the story it wanted to tell, and it didn't have to make any sort of concessions the whole way through. It got to do exactly what it wanted. Yeah. Because, like, with, with, like, other films that we've done, it always felt like there was a little bit of concession of, like, Oh, we want to set the entire city on fire. It's like, okay, well, you can have one city block and that's what you get. Or with the big bus, it's like, okay, we want to do this hilarious thing of, oh, this this bus is doing all these crazy things. It's like, okay, but they still need to be like physically possible to do. There was always a concession somewhere along the way of the disasters need spectacle and you can only go so big. In camera, at least. And this one, it just, because of the way they structured it, it was just, no, we know exactly what we can show, and we have managed to show everything we wanted. So, I, mean, I would argue there's almost no spectacle, because it's kind of, yeah. 
It's it's more about the threat of the big thing. The big thing that could happen is so monumental that, mm. like, unless the movie was going to have, like, a really, really surprising ending, which I was kind of half expected at one point. Uh, like, you know, the uh, unless the movie ends with California being uninhabitable for, like, ever. <laughs> the movie ends, Jack walks over to the phone, get me John Connor. <laughs> Um, that'd really be predicting the future, given this came out yeah. five years before Terminator did. Um, but you know, you like because the threat is this. It's, it's almost like a existential threat movie mm-hmm. in in many ways. Even though it's a very real thing that could happen, and the world has proven that yeah. <laughs> it very well can happen. Yeah. Um, it 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 sort of treats it as this existential like thing that we can't imagine or comprehend just how big a deal this would be. And that's why it has to be taken so seriously. And the characters in this film who are sort of fighting to take it seriously and saying that there's something going on here, we have to deal with this. Um, yeah, so. Uh, we'll, we'll get into it then, we'll get into it. So, uh, spoilers for the China Syndrome from this point on. You have been warned. So Spoiler yeah. alert. There's a nuclear meltdown, kind of, a little. Uh, there's almost one. There's almost one. There's almost one. A little bit of radiation. It's yeah. I mean, I, first thing I want to talk about is the uh, the, the way they trend because I love when they go to the plan right and you get the, the little the little lesson and how the reactor works and the guys get his pointer out and he's he's talking to them and then mm. Michael Douglas is making fun of it when he's you know because he's getting a reaction shot which again made me think of like shooting documentaries when I was in university. Uh, yeah, you know all this little thing he was doing. I noticed there was no diffusion paper on his lights, though. This is maybe a bit technical for the. I, you know, just, I just, I thought, why is there no paper on the lights? It's weird. This is just raw lights. Is, 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 did, not, did they not have that in the seventies? Nope. Back in the seventies, you took the full dose of whatever's in those lights. <laughs> no soft boxes or anything. What's nope. up? Anyway, uh, they they get taken to you know there's like a sort of a gallery position above the control room. Where you can look down. There's like a sort of window and. They're brought in there. They're told they can't film, although Michael Douglas slyly kind of has the camera on under his arm. Uh, yeah. Which, can I can I point out real quick, the whole reason they're brought to that gallery is they specifically say, like, we don't have enough light down here. We can't shoot anything. And he's like, oh, don't worry. I've got a much better place. And they bring him up to this gallery and then immediately tell him, like, oh, well, we can't shoot in that direction. We can shoot in this direction. <laughs> Meanwhile, the other direction is, like, a blank wall. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I don't think you quite know shot composition there, Gibson. <laughs> uh but what i love about this is that you know we're just watching from their perspective it's through the glass and they're just you know they're getting some more fluff from the the pr guy and there's a moment where the alarm goes off and when the alarm goes off is when we transition to the other side of the glass and all of a sudden this is where jack lemon becomes a character because now it's we're with them in the control room and we're following them reacting to reacting to this alarm yeah. And I think that just that, that is such a good trend. Like I felt it in the moment. Whereas, like, oh wait, now these are characters. That like before we were with yeah. the reporters, and now they're on the, the the quiet side of the glass, and we're with them because this is where the the real thing's happening now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that felt great. Uh, and the way that scene plays out, and you know, it's all just them. Is there's all these buttons lighting up, and the alarms going off, and they think it's all solved, and then it's like, oh shit, there's actually a real problem here, and there's a little bit of a moment where. Like, they've done what they can at this point, but Jack Lemmon's kind of, like, almost praying, like, please let this be enough yeah. to solve this problem. And there's so much to dissect here in terms of... So, I mean, fundamentally, what it comes down to is that they release some of the water because they think there's too much water, 
but it turns mm. out that there wasn't too much water. It's literally the the little you know the meter. It's mm. stuck. The little thing's stuck up at the yep. top. Tap tap tap. Yeah, Ew. yeah. And there's like there is multiple readings in the room if they go look for them. But the you know the mm. one guy's just looking at this reading, and. One of the things that I really liked about this is that later on when they're being interviewed by the, you know, the investigative board when they're, you know, maybe 20 minutes later and they're asking Jack Lemmon about this and they say, well, why don't your operator, like, you know, check another reading? And one of the things that I love that this movie does is that it, it treats Jack like a fallible human being. He's like, you know what? I should have checked too because I, d- I didn't think that, oh, I should double yeah. check with another meter. I took that as gospel that this was the right, you know, measurement. But it wasn't even him, like, falling on the sword for his subordinate it wasn't him like doing no that. yeah no 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 blame me i'm the one he was literally like they asked him why didn't you do this and he's like i genuinely can't tell you like i have no idea i should have he should have i don't know yeah and if you know it plays into stuff he says later about how the system's designed to have mistakes like there can be mm. mistakes there can be three mistakes four mistakes but the system's in place to always kind of eventually catch it so that it stops things from going wrong Mm-hmm. um and he always believes that even to his you know even to the end of the film he always believes that and the problem for him morally as a character is that at a certain point the company in charge isn't following the system and that's mm-hmm. when he sort of takes up umbrage so you know there was a risk this movie was going to be very anti-nuclear power and i don't actually think it is i think i think this character very carefully skirts a line to a point yeah, I mean, I don't think that it is anti-nuclear power in the vague sense. It's just in the applicable sense where it's like, okay, yes, there, there's nothing in this movie that says nuclear power is this evil, horrible thing. However, they do put the two and two together of nuclear power can end the world and people are inherently greedy in that <laughs> sort of position. And they're like... I mean, are these two really able to live with each other? There, there is an argument to be made, I suppose. But like, I, I think with his character, it really sets up the idea: is no, th- there's nothing wrong with this as long as the rules are are followed. And the yeah. pro- the problem is when people aren't going to follow the rules because it's inconvenient. And you know, well, mm-hmm. so, but like in this scene, like he he has this moment where they realize this and they're like, shit, why is there still something wrong? And then, like, mm-hmm. oh shit, we only have one pump left. They pump water in. That may not be enough. And it just—it's just kind of a miracle that it's just enough and no more to cool things yeah. down, so they don't have a meltdown. And it's like, okay, we got through it. But like I said, his performance for that—that that, like those like thirty seconds where he thinks, oh shit, we may actually be screwed here. Like, mm-hmm. you don't have to understand the science of this. You don't have to understand the ins and outs of everything they're doing. Oh, his yeah, performance throughout the entire scene tells you what you need to know about this. They- that was the one thing I've been very critical of because I'm not as familiar with 70s films is the trend in those movies to just hold on a shot, to just show us things that any other movie in modern day would just assume the viewer got. Like in this particular movie, there was one shot where they said, yes, come this way. And then we watched them as they moved their way down the hallway over into the elevator and then got on it. Whereas in a modern movie, I feel like it would... Just, you know, we assume, we know they got on the elevator. They don't have to show us the walking to part. But for that scene, they held for like the full 30 to 45 seconds. No words being said, just watching this little needle like start to bob up just a little bit. And it did so much work. So much in that scene of just 
waiting for this pin to just move ever so slightly. It, it, it was a fantastic use of shot composition. Yeah, I, I think everything in this, this sequence is, is shot beautifully. And, you know, the, mm-hmm. the guy, uh, played, the, the actor Wilfred Brimley, who you know, is, yeah. is a relatively well-known name, actually. Mm-hmm. He... he has diabetes. <laughs> what? <laughs> is that just another thing? across the across the pond is his his thing that i know him for is he was on a bunch of american diabetes association commercials he always opened it up with like hello i'm wolford brimley and i have diabetes just <laughs> constantly no that's uh all right no he also worked for oscar meyer <laughs> is this this wiener person you were trying to tell me about before yep this is him okay all right <laughs> uh but he he's he's the guy who you know incorrectly reads the water level and again not really his fault it, the thing's stuck like but you know he's the he's the the, the the sort of second down guy who could be held accountable for some of this stuff and he, he's a recurring character throughout the film as well uh mm-hmm. it has quite an important moment towards the end i would say oh yeah so like he like doesn't necessarily make any sort of, like they all feel human no one in this scene feels like a villain like and, and this is where i'm going to compare it to chernobyl because when you watch chernobyl and you see the, the similar scene in the control room on the build-up to the disaster happening, which they hold off until the last episode, and you get it sort of comes out during like the uh, the hearing where you sort of hear okay right. what happened on the night of, on the build-up to the disaster, and obviously that show has a villain, right? There's a villain, the, the person in charge in that control room, the outlaw, like he's mm-hmm. so easy to hate. And again, how much of this is dramatization? How much of this is like the, the accuracy? But I'm not really comparing it to the real event here. I'm just comparing it to the the scenes in the show versus the scenes in this movie, right? right? is that that gives us a villain this is a very interesting comparison point having already seen that show because this gives us characters who are not villainous they are not making mm-hmm. stupid decisions they expect things to work a certain way and there's a, a genuine mistake that is made a genuine understandable human error is made that anyone could have made it wasn't because someone was being uh, lazy or sloppy or was in a rush or anything like that it was just a genuine mistake that anyone would have made possibly in the circumstance Mm-hmm. Um, which is why they're also not like you know the, the, he, like I think uh, Brimley's character is worried for a little bit that he might become the scapegoat but it never yeah. actually turns into that it never becomes we need a scapegoat for this because ultimately no. there's no need if, for one yeah ultimately I mean if we're getting into the larger plot they repeatedly show how the company who runs this particular plant is building another one somewhat nearby and the regulatory board it has to issue them some sort of license, some sort of permit to do so. And if this place is under investigation for pretty much anything, it's going to trip up the whole process and they're going to lose, I think they said $500,000 a day. Yeah, some of that. Which is, of course, where the money starts coming in. This plant cannot stop operating for any period of time lest they just are unable to make their new plant and they start losing money every day. So that's where it starts to come in of who the actual villain is. Absolutely. And do you know what I, you know I kind of love about this? Is that, so in this scene, uh, you've, you've got, every so often it'll cut back to Michael Douglas, the way he's hand on the camera, and they're watching mm-hmm. this. And they've got this footage, and like they're driving sports, especially Michael Douglas, who is adamant, because she's kind of willing to let it go to a point, because they're like, hey, this is technically illegal to film in here. They're kind of protected by law. We're, all we're doing by showing this is breaking the law if we show this footage and they mm-hmm. say we can't do this and michael douglas kind of has a bit of a childish like fit about it 
and Sorry. demands that something be done. And what I think is really interesting about this part of the, the movie's premise is that he's con- Michael Douglas, and to an extent Jane Fonda's character, but especially Michael Douglas, are convinced that there was something more to what just happened here because they look scared. Because they, they, le- much like us, they're seeing mm-hmm. it without hearing what they're saying. They just see their faces and they think, it felt like something very serious almost happened there and it looked like a, a, an accident happened. And yeah. everyone's kind of okay after the fact and whatever. I kind of love that they're technically right, but they're also kind of wrong in a weird way. And I love that. That's where I love the Jack's character comes into it, where he explains, yeah, what happened wasn't good, but the system was in place to, to solve it. The, the real sort of threat for him is that there was a, you know, a, a little tremor in there mm. that he couldn't account for and that bothered him. So yeah. when they did that, they're, you know, there's, they have to do a check after all this happened. And when he looks into the check later and finds out that they didn't check properly and that the x-rays they've taken are actually just photocopies of the old x-rays mm. <laughs> and he notices that, um, it's like, no, there's a warning sign there. And my job is to recognize the warning signs and, you know, put, yeah. put, you know, put a stop in place to this. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, just to get the full picture here, the event as a whole started because of an earthquake. It yes. was an actual honest-to-God earthquake. Uh, they had a broken relay or something like that, which was what caused the thing. But as you said, there was just this tiny little tremor afterwards that everyone was like, oh, well, it's just aftershocks. And Jack Lemmon's character was like, no, 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 I, I, I live in California. I know what aftershocks feel like. <laughs> that wasn't an aftershock. And basically the entire movie is him just unraveling. He he goes through all these records. He goes through all these different numbers and whatnot, talks to different people who like manufactured the stuff and just discovers shortcut after shortcut that was taken during the manufacturing of this plant, which reveals that it doesn't pass very basic safety checks. Yeah, And as such, the entire plant needs to basically be shut down so that they can do these safety checks. Yeah, and then reinforce or replace it and it's right. you know, to be, you know, up to, up to stuff. And, you know, it's not even like, it, it kind of sounds like, yeah, there's one notable point where it looks like there's something slightly wrong. Because you can send with like a hazmat suit at one point and like mm-hmm. takes like a Geiger counter and you hear it kind of, you know. And there's nothing scarier than the sound of a Geiger counter. Like, in silence, you just hear the, the oh, counter yeah. ticking. It's like, Absolutely. oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it is quite terrifying. And it just... But what I love about it is I love that they're kind... Like, the reporters are kind of wrong. Like, they think they're onto mm-hmm. a story because they think they've seen something bad happen. But that was never the real threat. So I, I like the idea that, obviously, yes, safety at a, a, a nuclear power plant is like so important and it's so paramount that everything every layer of it be taken seriously that no shortcuts be taken and that's all all very true and the film is definitely championing that side of it but it's also saying that if you don't know how one works you're probably going to like assume those things wrong when there isn't <laughs> like yeah. you know trust the experts trust trust the fact that they know what they're doing to a certain extent um but the idea of the corruption within the system where like the people you know people in charge are saying ah oh, let this go like this will cost mm. too much money to shut everything down and it was it really was making me think of chernobyl because he, he says to them was like okay it'll probably be safe if it's like only half running but like if you put this thing up full if you if you like sort of like push the boundaries of what these like pipes and you know other things are doing mm. like something very seriously bad could happen and he can't live with that and what probably one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is when his boss says, I don't care what you've just told me, 
the bosses, you know, the company men are saying, hey, we have to turn back on by three o'clock. And there's a scene where they're in the control room and it's like, okay, it's, it's Jack's call to give the order to turn everything back on. And it sits in silence for like 60 or like, uh, what's, what's his mm-hmm. name? Brimley's character is like, uh, Jack. And he just, uh, it's like, he, this is the, the test of like his uh, conscience where he does not feel comfortable given the order to turn this place on because he knows that on some level it's not safe. Yeah. Um, absolutely i mean if you you really go if you go back once again to chernobyl that's literally what the whole premise is is that they have to run this safety check by this particular time in order to get this amount of money that's right that's right and then the one character is just like no i don't feel comfortable doing this the difference therein being is that the villain again in chernobyl is a bit more present rather than just being this hierarchy of greed that stretches up into the nameless investors yeah and fundamentally like jack has to die in the end for this place to be shut down and checked because you know as much as it's not necessarily a mission of guilt by the end of the movie the fact that they have caused a, a sort of male a male disaster at the end and mm. the plant means that oh they have to shut this down and look like, because it like half of it's fallen apart now so they ha- like now they can't wiggle out with this they have to like do all these checks well that's that's the thing is that the the disaster at the end was literally just the thing they said was going to happen it was that pump that they were they found the radioactive material from they they basically forced a scram thing that's what it calls essentially yeah. yeah it was basically just forcing him to think that the reactor was about to go critical or whatever so he started flipping switches or whatever and that gave SWAT enough time to get in and shoot him down but when they turned off the scram when they turned off this fake alarm it ended up causing this pump which they thought was going to fail if they pushed it too hard to actually fail and that honestly is the only spectacle in the whole movie is this pump starts disconnecting and falling apart from the wall and basically starts collapsing in on itself and yet they are they just brush it under the rug they're like yeah no, that something was damaged it's fine well, we'll get I, it fixed it's no big deal yeah again they're very lucky and it didn't actually amount to anything more but it kind of it just proves them right because this is the this yeah. is the thing uh brimley's character who's the one who's told to like you know do these things once jack takes a sort of like a harsh point where he, he takes the control room hostage with a gun uh, which mm-hmm. we'll get into all that stuff in a bit. But <laughs> he ultimately is like, wait, this thing that happened after we did this to like sort of get into the control room, after we initiated the scram, this thing that's happened afterwards is exactly what he said was going to happen. He was right. Mm-hmm. Like he knows deep down he was right. Yeah. Uh, which is why you know the big climax of the film is like him being interviewed and in, in the chaos outside the plant when kimberly's character asks him live on air and says no let him talk like do you think because because they're trying to spill this story that oh jack was a drunk and he was you know he was disgruntled he was this weird you know he's a nutcase employee who went off the the deep end and brimley at this point can't let that story like just stick he's like no he was a friend He was the most sensible man that i ever knew and he Mm -hmm. took his job seriously he was not a drunk and he might have been right this place probably should be shut down i think he avoids saying that exact line but like everything he says all but says it (laughs) and like how he's answering her questions Mm -hmm. um and it's like 
even though they're trying to spin it now, there's enough emotion and truth in what he just said, and then, you know, Kimberly kind of cries a little bit on air, she's saying goodbye, and, like, you know, that's us from Channel 3, blah, blah, blah. Uh, mm-hmm. And it gives it this really stark kind of, of ending, but there's a really satirical side to it for the final moment, which, uh, you know, like, so because it ends in the same way it started, with, like, her on the one screen, and then the other screen is the broadcast. Yeah. But this time at the end, it cuts back to the news anchor guy, and they're like, hey, just go to commercial, say we'll be back, and he, he, you mm-hmm. know, and, it, and they're saying, oh, she did great, she did great, that was a great report. And then the last few seconds we get of the movie, on the left, it's her still there, kind of like wiping her tears away and hugging Michael Douglas because it's like an emotional thing. They've just been through, she just saw this man die that was trying to help, and he mm-hmm. was killed for no good reason, really. Um, and we'll get into how that all happened. And then on the right hand of the screen, there's a commercial for a microwave and mm-hmm. it's just first of all the idea of nuking food obviously is like the kind of oh, the, yeah. the, the, the silly part of it but this idea that even everything that is fu- funding everything that is driving the news corporation to broadcast these things as much as our main characters nobly trying to like get this story out because the people need to know that this is unsafe and that shortcuts are being taken and something has to be done about that what's funneling all that is commercials for microwaves because it's all about mm-hmm. money to sell advertising. Would meaning that the news corporation, the TV station, is just a part of the same chain that the yeah. the power company and the I think I think it's a construction company that actually own the power plant. But regardless, uh, yeah, uh, same thing. So yeah, I mean, it is it is. I think which one was it? It was the Cassandra Crossing, I believe, which kind of ended on that same sort of note of mm-hmm. like. You know, oh, the government did this horrible thing, but it was just doing whatever. This one, I feel, had the same sort of ending tone to it of just this stark sort of making you question, is anyone here truly in the right? If that makes sense. Um, I don't know if I'd say it's saying is anyone truly. I I think the individuals are. But I think Um, it's pointing out that no side of the system is like. No sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't think it makes me go, oh, Kimberly's not in the right, or, you know... Oh, no, of or, course not. Or, you know, the motivations... I mean, Jack especially, like, he feels like a hero in this movie. Like, when, when he's, mm-hmm. like, conflicted about turning the plant back on and he does it anyway, you're like, oh, God, that, that hurt him inside. And now he's going to be motivated to, like, do something about it. Like, he's going to be motivated yeah. to keep going further with it. And sure enough, he, you know, he contacts uh, Kimberly. In fact, they come to him, and there's a great moment where... And this kind of goes back to the point I was saying that I really liked about it, is how... They think they're onto this story, but they're wrong about what the story actually is. Is mm. they're saying, "Hey, like, why don't you tell us the, the truth about this accident that happens?" Like, no, like nothing that happened that day. Like the the the, the thing with the pumps, it was all fine. That's not the problem. And it's that mm. sentence where Michael Douglas just looks up, and goes, "Wait, what do you mean that's not the problem?" And that's kind of the point is that they wouldn't get what the actual problem is, but he does, and he starts to kind of like explain what it is, and that. No, it's not safe because now it should be shut down because it's not passing safety checks. They're not doing the safety checks because it's inconvenient and it'll cost them money. Uh, and yeah. that's that's what gets us into the whole conspiracy part of the movie where we get like him being chased in a car when he's like driving to try and present evidence uh, to you know a hearing. Like because mm-hmm. it's the sound guy that works with Michael Douglas who's got the X-rays at first, and he gets run off the road. Uh, <laughs> and I, I suppose this is probably the most spectacle thing that really happens when I think about yeah. it. Yeah, it's a big car crash yeah. scene where he goes off to say that. Honestly, that was where I started getting just a little bit iffy, and I oh. I thought it was still very well done. I thought it was a great great sequence and whatnot. But it, I was like, I was so into this sort of 
him going around trying to figure out like, okay, here's this level. And I think that it's, for instance, in the, as we keep going back to a Chernobyl, it did a great job of exposing these mistakes and yet somehow they are still covered up. And it's not through any sort of brute force or anything like that. It's just through propaganda and lies upon lies upon lies. This movie, however, decided like, okay, they have these scans that will inequivocally prove that there is fraud and will need further safety checks. And so their plan is just car chase. Two car chases, to be specific. I mean, I get what you're saying. I mean, I think in Chernobyl, even the idea that they're all been watched by the KGB, and any time if they do go out of line, they'll be taken away, and you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like so. I I don't think that it's unfair to say, or it's fair yeah. to say that there's none of that threat in Chernobyl as well. But I I guess I just prefer the threat rather than actually seeing sure. it carried out. Sure. Uh, I actually really like the second car car sort of chase. Oh yeah, no, it was a great sequence. I just didn't yeah. think it would fit well. Well, what I like about it is, um, and why I do think it fits, is because, so Jack, when he, when they find out that the, the, the sound guy didn't make it with the evidence, right? It's mm-hmm. like, shit, I need to go down there. And as soon as he leaves his house, he notices this blue car following him. And we get this fun little chase where he's going on and off the highway, he's trying to like lose the, the tail, and you think he's lost him for a little bit, but, you know, then they pull up next to him on the highway, and he's like, shit. So... His plan then becomes to get to the, the plant because the plant's obviously got heavy security. He drives through the gate and then the gate shuts and then this this mysterious car following them can't just saunter on in. And what mm-hmm. I like about that is that it's kind of like this action he takes at the end where because not only will none of his superiors listen to him, which is what they're supposed to do, that's, that's, that, this is supposed to be simple. He's supposed to go to his superior and say, there's something wrong, let's fix it. And then they go, yes, that's exactly what we should do, let's fix it. That doesn't work. I'll go to the press oh, you're going to leak things? We will kill you if you try and leak things out. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, it pushes him into this corner where the only way he's going to actually solve this problem in some way is to take drastic measure, which turns out to be taking the gun off the security guard and taking control of the control room and kicking everyone out and saying, I want the security camera here, I want the reporter in to come and interview me here to get this information out. Um and they broadcast some of an interview, but they, they, you know, because of what they're doing with the SWAT team and that, it, it cuts them off. Mm-hmm. Oh, to be honest, it, it, it doesn't exactly look that great in the nuclear power plant that the last thing that the audience at home is going to see before it cuts off is the alarm going off as if there's something <laughs> happening. Oh, no. If I was watching that live, I would immediately be in my basement. Oh, like, yeah. there, is, there is no hope for that. Um, that one scene, though, I think... So I really do want to praise the film for they talking over each other and like it didn't feel like a stage play. It felt like real dialogue between mm-hmm. the people. And that was throughout the movie. Um, but I did at the end of that scene, it was obvious that they only gave Jack Lemon a certain amount of material because he got to the point where he was like, explaining what the event was and he was using very technical terms and then he just he never got to the point he never got to the point where he said they fraudulently did this thing and we have evidence of it he just kept on repeating over and over and over again it's like oh it's 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 too complicated it's too complex i can't explain it and he said that for probably a good like 30 to 45 seconds until finally he was like 
However, and then the alarm goes off right then. And it just kind of felt to me like he was killing time. Like, from a meta perspective, where he... Because he literally kept saying the exact same two or three lines, like, six or seven times. I think... Well, I mean, movies are edited, though, so I, I, I think that complaint is less to do with he was killing time and more that they chose to leave that in. True. Yeah, you know, because they can just cut that down in the edit if they want to, to make it feel shorter. That's not... So yeah. I, I feel like the point is, is that he's flustered. The point is, is that he's, he's having a hard time getting what he's saying out. And it is kind of mm-hmm. complex what he's talking about. So he's like, oh, I'm, I'm being too technical. I need to try and <laughs> make this more clear yeah. to people. He needs the red and the blue cards from Chernobyl to like oh, explain the, the problem. <laughs> but yeah, he, he's trying to get this information out and he, he's obviously failing. And, you know, it is quite horrific that he gets shot in, in front of uh, other characters and oh, they yeah. have to come in and press some buttons where he's, his blood is literally on the control panel and it, you feel the starkness of it and like you know mm-hmm. the ending does have that kind of bittersweet of like okay he had to die for action of some sort to be taken that they can't avoid and there's, there's still not ha- i mean the company and the people in charge of the company that are constantly fighting against it they've not learned any lessons here at the end oh no like they still have to, i mean they've been forced into a position now where they're going to have to like do because you know because part of it's actually broken apart i mean yeah like the the place is going to be shut down for a while now like they can't turn it Mm -hmm. on um but and you would hope that this is going to raise enough questions that people will campaign and do things about it and right whatever but you don't you don't know if that'll happen though you know it leaves it off in this bitter ending that uh you know, I, I, what I would be fascinated of is like how much safety protocols uh, were reinforced after Chernobyl uh, in the 80s, or even Three Mile Island. Like, you know, just like yeah. after after a big scary thing happens, like all of a sudden is like how how much more severe do they take those precautions and double, triple check and, you know, all the rest. I of mean, it. I can tell you with how America treats its gun laws, whenever something <laughs> bad happens, we always double down. We don't just ignore the problem and hope it goes away. I mean, that's a really sad, but true statement. And now we'll play the credits, but without any music. (laughs) I feel, I have to imagine that around the world, reactions did happen to those events. Oh, absolutely. I mean, definitely sentiment went up. Sentiment of anti-nuclear, anti-whatever went up. In terms of actual legal stuff, if sentiment's high enough, well, congressmen are going to put on a, parade of oh i'm voting against this therefore you should vote for me yeah uh i wonder did you think this got a bump in theaters when the real incident uh, no actually no? um i looked this up so yes it got a bump in theaters just so much as people were interested in it but the company columbia they specifically did not put out any extra marketing they didn't try oh, to really like cash in and they even pulled it from some theaters that were close to the event in Pennsylvania, so they they actually were very tasteful and respectful of what happened. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Why? Maybe I'm being cynical, but I feel like if that happened just now, it would like in the same way that Contagion was doing big numbers on Netflix at the start of the <laughs> pandemic. I feel I feel like it'd be like back in theaters. <laughs> like, oh yeah, extended Absolutely. run. See it in three D. <laughs> I mean, okay, so I don't want to harp too much on the actual thing of, like, shootings and whatnot, but there have been multiple movies that have had shootings that came out at inopportune times, and they very tastefully were like, okay, but, like, we're backing up. 
that's true yeah some scenes have been cut or like reshot to like recontextualize what they are um that, that's very true that's very yeah. true um yeah i i think i mean if nothing else the movie sells the fear of like oh, absolutely. What, what what the problem is with this and it also does so with great performances particularly from the lead to uh, actors i mean douglas is fine like he's michael douglas but he's, mm-hmm. he's he doesn't have the same amount of material to work with that the other two do yeah i mean i don't want to put i don't want to put the label of like comedic relief because he's not he's a very serious character he has very serious beliefs but he is also he's so anti-nuclear and he's so like almost conspiracy theory minded that in any sort of modern disaster movie, like the ones during the 90s and whatnot, you could see him as that character that we're supposed... Like, he's he would be, like, the nerdy character. Mm. He'd be the one that audience are supposed to point and be like, oh, I bet that guy's never been with a woman. Ha, har, har, sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's... I think, you know, looking more at Kimberly's character, I mentioned one of the themes in this where her not being taken seriously there's kind of an inherent sexism to the the industry she's in and not being listened to and maybe, maybe there's a comparison there to the idea of the the actual like the character with morals in the other industry is being ignored morals have got no place in this industry uh ethics have no place here um maybe that's kind of the comparison it's making but it's definitely a recurring theme throughout i mean aside from the dialogue at the start there's multiple scenes where she asks her boss to do more serious reporting uh, she's ignored, even though she's been loyal to them throughout. Mm. Like some of the early scenes where, like, the subject of doing this story on the power plant is brought up. There's a scene where she's with like uh, the head of the station, I think it is, at a party, and mm. she asks, "Like, can I like do some more serious reporting?" It's like, "No, you you do what you're really good at. Like, I don't I don't think you should do the harsher stuff. You you do the the fun, nice things that people want to see you do." Um, right. And even when she's in like a, a bar and she ends up running to Jack's character and starts talking to him about everything. Mm. Um, you know, there's kind of this sentiment from the people who come up and get her autograph and stuff. Oh, she's the pretty lady from the news. Which, can I just, maybe things were different in the 70s, mm. but could you tell me right now who your local news anchor is? <laughs> no. Nor can I. But, I, me, I, but let's be honest, though, there was no internet in the 70s, so everyone probably had to watch uh, the news. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I guess. <laughs> but, like, the, I think it was one person chimed in and be like, oh, yeah, my little girl loves watching you. And I'm like, why? <laughs> because they only had one TV in the house, and they all had to, so she was watching the news with her parents. Yeah, and she really liked the stories about the singing telegram people and the tiger's birthday and the belly dancer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I. But you know, it's just this thing that c- keeps coming up. Uh, but mm-hmm. she's like driving for for the story, and she's driving to to be taken more seriously. Um, yeah. and then they have to go after the harder stories. Um. You know, and I guess there's comparisons to be made as well of like the news station not wanting to rock the boat with a serious story that could cause waves. Instead, they want to do fluff pieces, right? That's kind of like the power plant not wanting to look into things more seriously. Oh no, like ah, the chances of that being a problem are ah, there's, there's nothing wrong. Just yeah, flip the switch on. Makes I money. mean, it 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 comes down to a thing of the station and the company, the nuclear plant, both being representatives of basically the status quo, the thing Mm -hmm. that is working for them. And our two leads are agents of change. There are things that come in and say, maybe we should be doing this differently. Maybe something here needs to change. And 
it is everyone fighting against each other. I think more notably, though, is that they're both characters who seem to be happy enough to work within the rules of the system they're in, mm-hmm. and it's not until they're faced with opposition that they don't expect because they shouldn't expect it that yeah. they, they're, they're forced to be agents of change. You know, I think she's willing to work up this ladder that she's presented with. Just like mm-hmm. Jack's character's like, yeah, I've been here for, you know, since before the plant was uh, built, and I love this job. Mm-hmm. I love you know, what I do, and, like, I take it seriously. And then all of a sudden, he's faced with this harsh reality of no one else wants to actually take this precaution, this safety, like, this, this, this little warning sign that he's noticed. No one yeah. wants to take it seriously. Um, so it's this idea of, like, these are characters who were basically happy to be part of the system, and then the system just, along the way, sort of, like, started to disregard them the second that they just didn't mm. quite line up with what the company line was. They they followed the rule book, but they didn't know there was a special secret rule book when money was involved. Yes, yes. And they don't. They they have to come up against that. Yeah, there's there's like a the the public sentiment that that these places all, you know, like a, a, any boss have said, ah, oh, this this working here, we're like a family. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyone yeah. who says that, that's that's kind of the 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 out you know outgoing message that these places uh, uh, particularly mm-hmm. in the film are kind of portraying but if, i mean not the family part specifically but uh oh, yeah. something akin to that where oh now you actually want to rock the boat with a legitimate reason oh no mm-hmm. now we can't abide by that and i think that that exploration definitely that that part of counterculture is definitely in this film uh michael mm-hmm. douglas is kind of already like if anything he's too gung-ho about it <laughs> at the start of the movie for no reason yeah but you know, that doesn't mean they say that it's not a valid, like, questions that he's raising or that people shouldn't be a- asking more questions. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah. I, I mean, I, I do think Michael Douglas's character is supposed to re- represent the truly outside the system people, whereas yeah. our leads are in the system, but not quite just yes men. They are willing to actually put in logical thought. Michael Douglas is 100% outside on both things. He I- doesn't believe in nuclear power, and he... Kind of hates the heads of the station as well. Well, uh, even literally, he doesn't uh, work there. He's an independent contractor. He doesn't. He's not employed mm-hmm. by the TV station. Uh, yeah. There's even a, there's even a line from the boss who's like, I didn't even realize he didn't work for us until I tried to have him fired for calling me an <laughs> asshole. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, uh, like I, I think it, it it's use of all these these elements, like you know, and I think it's it's good that we can look at this movie and like maybe it has a bit more i mean cassandra cross had a bit of meat to it as well actually surprisingly mm-hmm. uh this one's less surprising in the sense that if i knew exactly what it was about before i watched it i may have predicted that it was going to have a bit more meat to it oh yeah also if we're getting close to the end here we may want to explain what does china syndrome mean oh yeah of course <laughs> so china syndrome uh basically the idea is that if it, if it overheats and there's a meltdown and it melts down you know, through the, the floor of the, the, the plant and goes into the ground, it'll keep going. And it's called China Syndrome because the idea is, at least in this part of the world, it would go all the way to China because uh, it would go through the earth, which wouldn't actually happen. The, the truth no. is, is that it would hit the water and the water would, you know... Vaporize. Yeah. So, which is a big plot point in Chernobyl as well, is that you don't, yes, want, it is. You don't want to go down to the water. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, weird... I, I guess it's specific to this part of the you know to like the that part of the U.S. because I feel yeah I, I mean all all the nuclear reactors in China call it America syndrome so uh, apparently yeah yep 
Because I feel like whenever we talk, like in the UK, whenever we talk about going through the earth and coming out on the other side, it's always Australia we bring up. But I don't know if that's accurate. Like, I don't know if you actually put a line through a globe and did it. It would actually do that. But I remember looking this up when I was like 12. I couldn't tell you. I mean, the sad truth is it's probably just the middle of an ocean somewhere. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Nobody gives the Pacific Ocean enough credit for how massive it is. You're probably (laughs) ending up there. Uh, But, yeah. So, I... I think it's a really interesting film. It sells the fear of a meltdown or how catastrophic these things can be. If anything, I was surprised, you know, when he had the hazmat suit on and he sees some of the the leakage and his, you know, the Geiger counters going off. I was almost surprised there wasn't more stuff with radiation that brought up after that. I I was surprised that was the extent of it because I was like, oh, this could be an entire, the, the entire back half of this movie could be, oh, there's a radiation leak at the plant. and Especially because they kind of, the way that they described the, and the way I understood it from Chernobyl, the pump system, the water that gets pumped around, I don't think it's supposed to be that radioactive. It seemed like the thing that he was focused on with the Geiger counter was a solid object as well. So I'm not sure what we were supposed to be looking at there. Mm. But yeah, no, it was basically, I thought that the whole issue was that this pump, obviously if a pump doesn't work, then it's not going to be able to, cool down the core and that's a horrible thing to happen especially if it happens when you're not expecting it but it seemed like the way they were playing it was that if this pump broke down immediately radioactive things would just be released so i'm not sure if the end of this movie there with the pump breaking down there was actually a radioactive incident and we're supposed to follow on from that or if it's what i thought formerly it, yeah, I didn't feel like it was saying that there was an actual radioactive leak at the end, because it felt like the tone was more grounded than that. I didn't feel like it was going for, oh, there's this secret disaster that's happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, obviously I'm sure there's some science things in here that are probably a little off. Think, you know, things yeah. that, are, that are tidied up for it being a movie or whatever. But definitely there, there was enough terminology that I was, I was hearing that I was like, oh yeah, I remember them talking about some of this in Chernobyl. That I was like, okay, there's mm-hmm. definitely some like you know realism to this maybe not all yeah. of it but there's definitely some parts of it are so yeah was a, uh, yeah good performances good direction uh like I, I think jack's character ended up in a very interesting character by the time it, like you know by the time it became him being conflicted and this idea that he, he believes in the system and the system works it's just that people inside are starting to like not want to do it and that's what the yeah. problem is it's not the problem isn't that it, it, in and of itself is unsafe the system is fine, but they're they're abusing the system, and you know that that's where his fault is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I appreciate that, and I, I think that again that mirrors the, the news station stuff, where it's like, no, the idea of reporting to to you know expose truth and to keep everyone in the up and up, yes, that that's all very noble and makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is, is that the people in charge who are saying this can go on there and this can't uh, have forces behind them as well. Sure, we could have you spend a few weeks breaking down whether or not there was an accident in a nuclear facility, or find out which Disney princess you are on this nice little top ten list. Uh, I can't remember any names of Disney princesses to make a joke, so I'll just move on. Fair enough. By the way, I looked up the opposite of China in terms of opposite side of the world. You'd have to be in pretty southern brazil ah interesting so it's all south america 
So that's all. That's the whole thing's a sham. <laughs> yep. China syndrome doesn't exist. Wake up, sheeple. <laughs> yeah, I never heard that term before. Um, no, I did Google it though. It is a pre-existing term, oh, so yeah, they yeah. didn't just make it up for the movie. Yeah, I, I kind of give them the benefit of the doubt that it wasn't then they made it up. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because I think I think this movie because I heard the word syndrome, I just assumed it wasn't. You know, I, I thought it was going to be a virus or something. Yeah. Uh, so so when it started, it was like oh, we're going to a nuclear power plant. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> what's, what's happening we're doing Chernobyl stuff nuclear viruses <laughs> I mean radiation's already pretty deadly it doesn't really need to have a virus attached to it <laughs> I'm just saying this is pretty much how a Resident Evil movie could start and I'd be okay mm. with it uh, you'd be okay with it I would be okay with it I, the, I have integrity that I yeah. want for my Resident Evil as long Evil. as we wake up in a mansion with a girl named Alice because I no, need authenticity no, in mine no, no, no Alice no Alice is allowed uh, I did not approve of that one bit. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, but no, it's a good movie. Um, yeah, I was, I was, uh, I was into it. Uh, I think the 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 lead character, well, uh, arguably lead character, Jack. I think Kimberly's maybe the lead as well to a point, but um, he he, I think has the the real kind of like the the growth in the movie that you really start to root for. And I, I generally did get worried for him when he started being followed where I'm like, oh, like I could see him meeting his end. Oh, uh, yeah. And he does ultimately, but he does it sort of late enough that like the, the, the his death means something and actually mm. causes some change. Uh, I, I will point out uh, just a trivia note I saw was that apparently oh, yeah. this was the first movie that Jack Lemmon starred in where his character died on screen. Oh, really? Interesting. He never had an on-screen death in his entire career before that. That's a run. Mm-hmm. He's in a lot of movies before this. That's, uh, yeah. That's the opposite of Sean Bean. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, all right. Were you rating uh, The China Syndrome? Uh, so, as I said at the beginning, I thought it was pretty much on par or even better than Poseidon Adventure. Uh, Poseidon Adventure, I gave a 7.5. So... In talking about it and really thinking about the movie as a whole, I gotta give this one an eight. I mm-hmm. really didn't. I enjoyed this just that little bit more than Poseidon Adventure. While it didn't have as much spectacle as pretty much any movie we watched for this show, I think that the character development and the art direction of the film more than made up for the lack of big budget spectacle moments. So eight for me. Yeah, uh, I'm just noticing here on the poster at the top it says, "Today only a handful of people know what it means. Soon you will know." And we're spreading the good word. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So they're actually sort of marking it as you don't know what that means, what this title means. Yeah, you have to come and see the movie to find out. Uh, yeah, I, I'm also going with an eight, uh, which is the same rating I think I gave Cassandra Crossing. Um, mm-hmm. I think. This is a tighter movie in that I think Cassandra Carson is definitely a little messier. I kind of love it for its messiness. Um, okay. And I, I obviously like the spectacle and that's very good. And this is a tighter movie with a very clear point, a very clear, strong sense of its characters and what it's trying to do thematically. Uh, so I'd, I'd say objectively this is better and I might like it a little better than Cassandra Crossing, but they're pretty close in terms of mm. my overall enjoyment level. So uh but no uh happily recommend I, I, after you know i wasn't as into the big bus as you were and you know, obviously neither of us were that into city on fire so i'm happy to right. end on a on a high note with uh with yeah the China syndrome. for sure so 
That's very good. Uh, mm -hmm. So that marks the end of of a of a season here. Um, like I mm -hmm. said, there's easily a season two of seventies disaster movies that we'll get to some point. <laughs> um, for for completionist purposes, we are marking this down as making the cut. I'm assuming. Oh, of course, yes. Uh, definitely makes the cut. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, makes the cut. So yeah. Um, yeah, there will be a season two of Civic Disaster movies in, like, I don't know, a year or so. Cause, yeah. and that's, the reason why I say that is because we've got a lot of the next year mapped out, and I think there's no room for it. So, nope. Uh, I guess before we say what works, what's coming next, I mean, I mean, how do you feel about Civic Disaster movies now that we've done, like, a batch of them? I mean, having this basically be my only exposure so far, I definitely... I recognize that they had something going for him back then there was a certain ability to make these films i think that it was a thing of you know we finally got to the point with special effects in the 70s where they felt like no we can use miniatures and we can use stop motion and maybe even some practical stuff to bring these moments to life and it was only once the 70s hit and you know i know there were some big spectacle moments in the 50s but those came with a lot of people dying sometimes. So once the seventies hit, you know, we were able to do it safely. We we're able to literally set a city block on fire and not worry about whether or not seven people will die because of it. Oh, and it's so, very, it's very notable as well that the next wave of disaster movies comes in the nineties when CG starts to be exactly more of a thing. Yeah. When it's like, wait a minute, we don't even have to pay for the city block anymore. Fantastic. <laughs> um, um, but no, yeah, I definitely did on the whole enjoy it. I think it was a good experience. I don't think that I would say that it is, you know, markedly a favorite genre where I'm going to be like, yeah, let's look back on old time disaster movies. And by old time, I just mean older than the 90s. So do I do I enjoy the movies that came out for the most part? Yes. If season two came <clears throat> around in a year's time, I don't think I'm going to complain. I'm not going to sit there and groan and be like, oh, God, more of these. I think it's got enough variety got enough spark to it that some good films have genuinely been pulled out of this yeah i've uh, been actually pleasantly surprised with how much variety it's felt like we've had uh mm -hmm. out of this batch so uh i look forward to doing the other the other sort of half of the the known ones uh mm -hmm. the other half not including the airport movies because that's its own franchise but we can actually do yeah. just an airport season uh <laughs> combined with the airplane movies so uh but yeah we, we got tower and inferno to do we got um, a roller coaster <laughs> to do, <Yeah. laughs> uh, all sorts of fun shenanigans. So uh, on earthquake, of course, yeah. Oh, so uh, yeah. So that'll come at some time at a later date. But next up, uh, we are going on to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, live action movies. Now, why are we doing this? You might be asking. Well. Uh, later next year, there's going to be a new animated Turtles movie, and yep. we will do the 2007 animated CG film with mm -hmm. that when it's coming out, but because of the way the schedule's working out and other franchises we have to do for new releases throughout the year, it just actually neatly worked out that we have a slot coming up after this batch where, hey, we can do the five live-action Turtles movies. That's the three originals and then the two later ones produced by michael bates oh boy which i have only seen like the first half hour of the first of those two because i, I didn't know why to watch the rest of it so can't wait for that i have seen 
most of the first one from the 90s, and I have seen nothing else besides that. So oh. I'm coming in pretty fresh. Exciting. Mm-hmm. Exciting stuff. So uh, break out your uh, nunchucks and <laughs> pizza. The only other thing I know I think is from the second one with the ninja rap by Vanilla Ice. Oh, of course, of course. Go ninja, go yes. ninja, go. Yes. Of course. Uh, so yes, that. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles coming up next, so we're we're jumping to '90s stuff for the next few episodes, and then a couple of 2010s numbers after that. So, oh boy. um, I don't know if we decide what the bonus episode for those was yet. We'll discuss that after the fact. But uh, this has uh, been the Collider's Cut. I will take this time mm-hmm. to thank our Patreon producers uh, for the month. So, thank you to Tyler Hess and the Palacios board now, Christopher Moy, David Brown, Al Tribesman. Uh, for being our, our producers at one of our higher tiers at Patreon. You can, of course, still support us by going over to patreon.com slash TV and get some bonuses, including a monthly bonus episode. You can also get it as a YouTube member as well, um, if you want to do it that way. Uh, but you get a bonus episode every month, as well as bonus stuff for other shows that we do on Mailfuzz movies, uh, such as uh, the Atomic Cinema Experiment, a sci-fi movie podcast, and Screams After Midnight, the horror movie podcast. So go and have a look and see if you're interested in doing any of that. But of course, you can support us for free by simply liking, subscribing, dinging the bell for notifications, commenting below. All these things do help, as does, of course, rating us five stars or whatever the equivalent is on your podcast app of choice. Apple being the most common one, but whatever one you <laughs> use. Uh, rate us and share us. That's the, the name of the game. So thank you very much for joining us. We always appreciate it. Um, hopefully you've enjoyed 70s disaster season. And we'll see you next time for some Kawabonga fun. <laughs> so keep Radical, watching. dude. So keep watching movies. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>